Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Dearly beloved, welcome to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping movie podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solom Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we always talk about three movies at a time based around a similar genre. If you subscribe, and we hope you do, and we hope you listen to other shows on the network like The Discourse, The Fourth Wall, and Indie Beat. If you know about those things, you know that we uh, we like real specific genres. Do we not, friend? We love tight, specific genres of some plot thing happening, <laughs> some major theme, some, I don't even Sometimes know. Sometimes just actors in common. Light motif. Yeah. <laughs> this time, I dare say we've got a light motif. What am I marrying into here? Yeah. What kind of family is this? What sort of in-laws are these people? Uh, and it runs the gamut from uh, schizophrenic to uh, just outright bloodthirsty. evil. Yeah. Bloodthirsty Satanism. Yeah. So we're here, <laughs> we're here to talk about uh, the new movie, Ready or Not, which I think has uh, pleasantly surprised a lot of people in, in these, the still the dregs of August. I know I said that with Where'd You Go Bernadette last week, but I think it's still fairly safe to say we're hanging out there. Um, and we've paired it with 2000's Meet the Parents, which is one of the more famous movies about this, uh, this idea of, if not horror movies, movies about a certain horror, right? Um, like one of the most vulnerable situations one can imagine is like, I want to meet these in-laws. What do they think of me? Uh, and then we're also doing 2005's Monster-in-Law. What genre arcing notes do we want to give at the top before we get into Ready or Not? Have you, Chance, had a, a tough or really easy run-in? What's your, what's your general experience been with uh, parents-in-law and or parents yeah, partner of sig parents? others? Yeah, neither of us are married, so we can't quite say in-laws. But no. you've definitely met the parents of ex-girlfriends or current girlfriends well so before we get into good stories i know you have i wanted to say i think one of the kind of goofy things about this category is that most real life people because they've been there themselves and have some baseline of empathy know what a harrowing experience it can be to meet Sigother's parents right so I, sure. I don't you think that people most of the time are like extra nice, at least at first, like they go out of their way to make you feel comfortable. I feel like in this day and age, sure. Sure. Um, but then again, 
So if Tell I can get line. into spin us a yard, the, the aforementioned uh, Noah good story here. Um, several years ago, I dated the daughter of a former professional NFL, now college coach guy. That's right. He was an NFL player and a big college player, big NFL player, and now a coach on a college team. Uh, Sarah his, Farr, was that her name? Yeah, Sarah Farr. <laughs> Uh, Cynthia Marino. (laughs) Yeah. But what did this man go by? So this man, of course, uh, went by professionally as the judge. (laughs) I mean, this guy's a huge former defensive back. And so the first time I met him, I went down to the college town where he coaches. And we had thanksgiving dinner with the whole team like in the player area in the stadium which is already like that's 300 people like that was already an insane experience yeah and then we had just gotten to town we do this meal and then immediately after the meal he comes and finds me and he's just like no and i are gonna go on a bit of a drive uh-oh uh-oh like, this is i've only been there for 90 minutes and so we like go on this drive very similar to the one uh, from Meet the Parents when they go to the uh, Oyster Bay nickel and dime or whatever uh-huh. to get Tom Collins mix. Um, but it was definitely some serious, some serious questions. Yeah. That I don't know whether or not I had the correct answer. I mean, we're not together anymore, so I don't think it was. Maybe I didn't that. have the right answers. Right. That's what's amazing to me about these movies is that, like, if you had lived through them, Chance, like, would you still be with this person? No. And this is the thing that, like, you have to <laughs> you have to either put aside or look deeply at with all these movies because that they're they're based on. I mean, and I can enjoy the enjoy the comedy and you can enjoy the horror and you can enjoy the fantastical elements thereof. But um, they're all based in part on the couple not being able to talk about how obviously horrifying this is going right right either not finding the right time to or just having the spouse that belongs to the family uh, be totally unaware and oblivious right yeah you know what makes all these movies like look a little um black and white no pun intended here is get out um like that that version of meet the parents is so um it's so nuanced and the things that Allison Williams does in terms of like, Oh, I'm sorry, Chris, my parents are so embarrassing. Or like, he's going to tell you who would have voted for Obama the third term. The idea that like they know each other so well and that she uses that her seemingly normal ability to communicate up until the very end is so smart and like well observed compared to this, just like, well, you know, my dad, he's going to hook you up to a polygraph test. Like it's not a big deal, sweetie. Right. No, Get Out is definitely like one of these movies. I think another one of these movies to a classic is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. And those two, of course, like deeply interrogating race and like what they mean to an older sort of like conservative lives by. they All these families like live by a certain code. Yep. You want to talk about Ready or Not? I would love to talk about that. Okay. So this came out this past week weekend um it's from fox searchlight i should have seen how you want let me real let me look real quick how it did over the weekend i'm seeing 11 million dollars as of what's the budget uh the budget is six 
Oh, wow. So Ready or Not is um, a film from this three-headed collective called Radio Silence, and it's Matt Bettinelli-Olpen, Tyler Gillette, and Chad Villela. Although Chad does not have a directing credit on this movie. And they came up in this sort of like halcyon days of YouTube, making like short films and kind of like pranky films around like 2010. And then they have uh, some shorts in the horror anthologies uh, VHS, which was like a big deal for horror heads when it came out. And Southbound. I mean, Devil's Due is their, is their prior feature. Um, so yeah. And then this movie has a big cast like it basically it has a cast the size of a wedding party right um certainly which is well one side of a wedding party sure um and it's pretty fun to see it fill that out so you have uh samara weaving um who this is not like this should not be a reflection on her but for those curious she is hugo weaving's um oh is she niece yeah i just knew she was australian australian and her last name was weaving so for those curious um so Samara plays Grace, this woman we like don't really know anything about other than she is marrying Alex Ledomas, um, who is sort of the self-exiled son of this gaming empire or dominion as they prefer to be called which is a very funny right. line in the movie. They're like the Parker brothers family or like the Milton Bradley family. Sure, but they're into but like- games of all kinds. I mean, I think they're just specifically into games where you're encouraged to make a Faustian bargain with the devil. That seems to be their bread and butter. So, like, the movie begins with this panning shot of, like, their game room. And it's literally filled of, like, these creepy-looking board games. I guess the devil does factor into a lot of the board game coverage you see. Oh, yes. But Alex has returned to his family for this, their wedding day. And you meet uh, uh, Daniel, who kind of seems like his fucked up brother. You meet the parents. Adam Brody. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Adam Brody. It should be said. You meet the parents played by the God Henry Zerny and the God Andy McDowell. I just love both of them so much. Mr. Hunt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You don't have one of these, do you, Jack? Um, That was clear in present danger. That's nice. (laughs) For For my folks out there. Um. But you get a cold open. You know right away that, like, they hunt people on wedding nights. Like, you know that from the trailer. You know that from the cold open. So that's not spoiling anything. And we will save the spoilers and let you know for a, for a further off part of the review here. Um, but they... It should be said this movie's, like, 90 minutes. It really, like, wastes very little. So you have this wedding and some banter that lasts, I don't know, five minutes. And they're like, hey, it's midnight on your wedding day, so we got to play a game. So, at midnight, you have to play a game. Why? It's just something we do when someone new joins the family. A game. What game? Hide and seek? Are we really going to play that? Well, the rules are simple. You can hide anywhere. We then try to find you. So there's no way for me to win, right? I mean, stay hidden till dawn. (laughs) No, thank you. Good luck. What the hell is this? How old is this thing? I know you're in here. Oh, Jesus. You shot the maid. Does she look like she's wearing a giant white wedding dress? Emily? (laughs) Holy shit! I had to play along so that I can get you out. It's insane. They think they have to kill you before sunrise. Something very bad will happen to the family. 
if we don't find her and perform the ritual, we're all dead. Found her. Before we talk about the family, because the family is super interesting, can we talk about Grace and the Samara Weaving performance? Absolutely. She's very likable, like right away. And I think part of that is just the mishmash of things this movie is trying to do where the house, which is so, it's just, you know. It's well, the house that- was, it was shot at the Castle Loma, which is like a famous mansion in Toronto. That's oh. like open for tours that I've, for some reason, have been on. Uh, oh, interesting. This very like dark and creepy place, though, that looks Ooh. like it has all these like, and it does have all these like odd, dark corridors and like it's rented out all the time. The lighting is terrific. It feels both like dusky in a creepy way, but also like, you know, there is a richness to it um, right. that is very intentional and very appealing as they're all wandering around with their, you know, shotguns and crossbows. Right. Um, but it's so it's combining this kind of like Victoriana idea with this pace that feels so, so modern. Like, I don't think there's a slow minute in this whole goddamn movie. And they're all also. Um, you know, swearing like like sailors, including Grace, which is like, I'm not scared of your fucking family, which is somehow like a dissonance that's not dissonant. I think it only makes it more appealing. I think it does a really good job of quickly stripping away any veneer of like, oh, the rich are proper. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. the rich just have the wherewithal to do what needs doing. I think is this movie's ethos from five minutes in. Like even in the way that Henry Zerny is charming in the way he tells them or tells her the background story and the way he's just like, so go hide and we're going to count to a hundred and then we'll find you. And then like life will proceed as normal. And for him, like that's totally true. You're right, you're right. And then he comes back and he's just like, here are all the weapons we got. We're turning off the security cameras for now. Uh, Let's do this thing. And there's a weird sort of normalness to them, which we'll get into in a second, but normal on our level too of being like, these people just say fucking shit all the time too. Right. They're just playing a different game. There's a great moment where she you know, in all her innocence about this specific thing is like, so can I win? How do I win? And Henry Zerny goes, well, you could stay hidden till dawn. <laughs> Hypothetically. Which, yeah. But like, we know you won't and we're going to like impale you and sacrifice you. Um, well, she already knows as a poor person that rich people are weird. Right. She just doesn't know how deranged they mm-hmm. happen to be. But then it's sort of interesting to see while she is nervous and whatnot, like once people start dying around her, she's not like, oh, my God, like what's, you know, how could these people do it? It's like, why didn't you tell me that these are my nightmare, but my totally realized nightmare of what rich people do behind closed doors? She is a very good scream queen in that way um, because it's pleasant how quickly she picks up a weapon for herself. Like that happens fast. Right. Um, Like as you would, right? Like you wouldn't just like run around like flailing for an hour because this movie doesn't have an hour to give her to do it. Um, But yeah, like the, but that dress becomes not white so quickly. Yeah. Um, Apparently they had like 18 dresses. Oh, yeah? Like in various levels of disarray, depending on which part of the movie it was and what she'd been through. But it's incredible to see like the juxtaposition with how beautiful and white uh, 
the dresses in the prologue or in the first scene um and then by the end just how black it's 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 so far beyond red that it's black Uh uh-huh uh-huh um you want to talk about adam brody what do you want to say about adam brody we like adam brody on this show i like adam brody well, really, I just like In the Land of Women, and Adam Brody happens to be in that movie. That movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I've, that's our official position on that movie is that it sucks. I think I did come around to to that understanding. But, but this movie puts him back where he's supposed to be. If you think about the OC, which I do every day when I wake up, he was never supposed to be like the romantic lead of the... Like, if you watch the first season of the OC, it is like Ryan Atwood and Marissa cooper can i remember all their names yes the seth cohen like summer stuff is you know there's that's the product of season two right (laughs) which i don't acknowledge Um, season two is hardly canon right uh it's four (laughs) that's not canon but yeah he's so charming and so funny and so self-aware that i feel like and so good looking that I think he did make like a leading man bid there for a moment. And he's way, way better when he's like the guy who's stuck in the ground in the 10. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about. Or in this where he's back to playing like the fuck up brother. He's kind of the, I would call him the black sheep brother, but he's just sort of like, you get the sense that whatever this family has had to do has, has poisoned him. Like when everyone else takes off their ties it's because they're ready to hunt. But, like, he takes off his tie seemingly before the wedding even begins because he's got to, like, tie a few on. Um, and it's really interesting to watch him be a coward and also, like, try to have a moral code. It's really interesting, I think, to watch them all be cowards, frankly. Well, it's interesting to do, to see him do Roman from Succession, which is Kieran Culkin's yep. thing. And he definitely, like, plays it with a little bit more heart... Thank God. Uh huh. Otherwise, this would be a far different movie. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting seeing him go back to like rich and kind of sad about it. Yeah, he should be a supporting player. Sure, it's he's nice a great character see. actor. I mean, he can do it's one not... character. Right. Um, but he can do that character either jubilant or sad. Yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. Can we talk about Annie McDowell, whose name? puts terror in my heart every time i see her in a movie because she's terrible what i think she's, you don't like andy mcdowell i can say i definitively don't like andy mcdowell in literally anything except for maybe this and sex lies and videotape what about four weddings and a funeral i think bad okay She's really good in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, though. You think she's okay in this? But that's because she's, like, cast as that, like, oh, I don't know where I am. You think she's okay in this, though? Yeah. I th- No, I think she's really good. Because I think she's gotten to that, like, she's got that, like, Demi Moore energy yeah. about her. Totally. Where it's like, I'm sexy now, and I'm going to smoke cigarettes, and, like, I'm going to be charming, but also sort of distant. and like, A simmering nonchalance. Me. She does have a, a simmering nonchalance. That's that's a great way to put it. Um, Becky. And one she really she... just like throws it around too from that one scene where she's like smoking a cigarette knowing full well. Cigarettes play a huge role in this genre. 
That's true. Um, knowing that Grace smokes and like asking her if she smokes and having Grace white lie and say no is such a power move. She is powerful, and yet one of the things I like about her performances and almost everyone is that they're not arch. Can you imagine no. how old this movie would get if everyone was like really arch? Right. You get to see that they're that they're wrong and they're flawed, but that they all do in their own ways think they're right in like would be sympathetic ways. A lot of good layers sneak into the family. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's brilliantly written too because everyone has their foil. Like Henry Zerny, the patriarch of this powerful media family, also like gets too angry at stuff, and Andy McDowell, his wife Becky, is just like, "Honey, calm down. Like you don't yeah. need to get that upset about it. Like we still have to like get this thing done." Yeah, which is so funny. Like seeing her level him and like bring him back down to earth, you know. And then you have like this other layer with like the crazy Aunt Helen. Yeah, she's Annaline. the arch one. She's the arch one, but in such a passive way, because she's like this sort of, you know, not physically imposing old woman with like spiky white hair. And you think she's like the cool aunt, but really she's like the aunt who like believes in the curse stronger than everyone and has been talking about it like since before we were even close to like counting back from a hundred. Right, right. Only he will decide. He's like, okay, Aunt Helene. Oh my God. Can we poke at this movie at all, though? Are you are you game? Am I down for the most dangerous game? Film criticism? Of course. Great. Do you think this movie is robbed of that, like, further level not having that her friend who works in TSA to, like, ground <laughs> this movie to the outside world? Um... I see what you're saying. Because I think the best part about the ending of Get Out, for example, is the cops show up, but you don't know whose side the cops are going to be on. Right. In this one, I think they have a similar opportunity if and when, like, emergency services show up. Like, are they going to take the word of this orphan girl who seemingly has no connection with the outside world or are they going to believe these rich people who own three professional sport or four professional sporting teams i'm with you i just think you're talking about the the smallness of there is a there is a, a myopia to this movie that does not leave the grounds and does not leave the the family and yeah there are not those more ambitious layers to it i also don't think there's a lot of subtext to this movie at all no um, you even have grace being like fucking rich people which is kind of like what the audience is already thinking right like it's it is loudly declaring it's it's political read what game do you think uh donald trump made jared kushner play with him before he would allow him to marry his prized daughter ivanka trump you you want the really boring answer probably just golf yeah golf hungry hungry hippos followed by nine holes of golf Yes, um, or a thousand holes of golf. If the uh... just for the rest of your life, Jared, you're going to be my golf buddy. That's right. Part of what makes it so good is that it is incredibly watchable and contained, and not all that ambitious in some ways. It's uh, you know, it's it's textures in terms of genre and execution are interesting. Like it's thematic textures, like don't run all that deep, except for one that I want to talk about a little later. Um, I just love the verve with which it goes after a B plus, you know? Yeah. 
Well, just looking at that old standard Balzac quote of like behind every great fortune is a great crime. And this one sort of literalizes that in like there was literally a pact with the devil that has caused this family. (laughs) Which is goofy as hell. But like in 2019, when we're like looking at, you know, Epstein's and Cokes and Trump's and like, you know, the Walmart people and all that. You know, it's hard to understand really like what is the secret sauce that allows these despicable people to control this vast amount of wealth with seemingly no acumen for like treating people well. Right. It's true. And I think that I mean, that is just the text. That's not the subtext. That's just the text. To talk about this more, I think we should go into spoiler territory. Are you down? I would love that. So if you haven't seen the movie, which spoiler... I think we're going to recommend you doing. Yeah. Skip ahead. Five minutes? Five minutes. All right. Um, so then if you have seen this movie or you don't plan to see it because you don't like movies where like people get Derringer bullets and uh, crossbows shot through their body or get their face scalded with tea. By the way, one of the best moments, one of the best, like Adam Brody, you are like a really gifted comedically is when the butler comes back. And his face is all scalded with tea. And Adam Brody goes, (laughs) (laughs) just like, yeah, he will always be like the petulant rich son. Right. I love Um, him too. When he's just like, she's in the study. Yeah. She's been gone for like five minutes. And they're like, where is she? It's like, oh, you just missed her. That's right. That's right. He's Um, good. But what happens in this movie is that everyone, the curse is real and she survives till dawn and they all just fucking explode. Including including the children, one of whom shoots Grace through the hand with the Derringer I mentioned earlier. And I felt like that was almost the most significant like risk of the movie is that the kids who are what eight and 10 explode like blood bags, just like everyone else. But I feel like that's ingrained in sort of the proletariat's general feeling towards rich people, like hyper rich billionaire people at this moment that like our fantasy is like, I wish whomever I dislike would just explode in a bloody ball and their kids too. And the whole family line just like snap and they're gone. We're not disagreeing. This is the point. I think that this movie expresses think, yeah, a rage. This that movie is very is, much has anger in its heart towards the 1%. And I think there is something so satisfying oh, about satisfying. seeing this thing. And I think it's interesting too, as I mentioned at the opening, the idea of this curse is that, you know, oh, once hide and seek is drawn. And parenthetically, do you think hide and seek is just the thing that Mr. LaBelle picks when he feels like there is someone with a soul at the table? Because, like, Fitch got, like, old maid because, like, clearly he's, like, a shell of a human and he'll just love the money and whatever and sell out in perpetuity. I don't know if there's intentionality now. I don't know. But it seems like the people who actually have good hearts who could potentially turn the curse around via undoing it through marriage and love. This gets into part two of my point here. The reason that I think the guy explodes at the end is because she throws the ring back at him, not because he didn't kill her. The way Mm. you get out of the curse, in my theory here, the way you become a not-shitty rich person is to get the hell out of that family and marry somebody fucking normal and do good with your life. 
That's but the second he he gets that ring thrown back at him and is like, no, I'm not doing that. I am just my father's son. That's when the the the, the true evil and rich grossness in him is, is exercised. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and I, I have to say, I mean, remember there are all those conversations in, you know, November, December, 2016 of like, what are we going to get out of this administration? Like probably a bunch of good punk albums. Right. And I think the answer to that question has been no. Um, you've gotten a lot of like dark kind of helpless meditations, um, in your indie films, but, um, this and sorry to bother you, I think are the two movies I think of that are just like, you know how we you can deal with this is is just like anger that's the only way right. to make sense of like how fucked up and self-facilitating um the rich and the systems of power the exploitative systems of power happen to be certainly and i would definitely put get out in that conversation as well the only not to be nitpicky but that was all written and conceived and directed before the election so that's why i didn't sure. think about that one but jordan peele knew it was coming Oh, he did. Okay. Good. He knew what was there. I mean, us is in this conversation as well, probably. It's just you don't. But us is so complicating about like identity and like which which family are you from, guys? As opposed to like, um, you know, even the kids will do what it takes to honor their idea of family, and therefore they should explode as well. Let me ask you this: Did you find this movie like to be a little gratuitous in its gore? No, I thought I the hand it. on the nail was like a little much. I don't know. I think that's how you... I, that's or the you, back scratching on the fucking fence when she's squeezing through. I mean, I didn't like like that. I didn't enjoy it. But that wasn't I also, your favorite part? No, but I also think that's how you make a movie like like this like stand out. How you implant, how you scar a couple images on the mind because otherwise sure. they're, they're just chasing each other. The script, is, the script is good. It's not like hilarious. There are comedic moments. And I there think are that, bits, yeah. Yeah, there are bits. I think those are the things where they, uh, the movie just tries to add, you know, jump into a slightly higher weight class. Because it's already, you know, from bantamweight to featherweight. Oh, we haven't rated it. Uh, so we rate movies two, with two metrics on the show. There's a good and there's a, there's a good bad and then there's a good bad. And the first one refers to technical quality, uh, you know, intellectual um, stringence. Uh, you know, filmmaking skill. And the second one is just more for, for you and yours because we respect subjectivity on this show. What are you into? What do you like? Did, would you watch it again? How was the entertainment? Um, Did you have fun? Yes. And I think this is a good good. There is not a wasted minute. Um, there's And there's a lot to be said for mishmashing genres and vocabulary and making just like a breathlessly entertaining movie. Certainly, yeah. While I don't think it's going to be like in the best original screenplay conversation, Oscars no. twenty twenty, um, it's definitely a good good. You know, it's well made. Sure, there are some things you could poke at, but it's a good time, and it's it's not one of these slog kind of August. What kind of movie is this movies? Um, it's not where'd you go Bernadette <laughs> it's not where'd you go Bernadette it certainly right. is taught and knows what it's doing from the beginning and right. if you like I uh, tipping my proverbial hide and seek cards too much here uh, have a rage towards the 1% that grows by the day uh, you know if if you like I pictured David Koch exploding <laughs> in a blood ball when you saw the news that he had expired, this yeah. movie uh, is for you. 
Right. It's true. Okay. So should we go to meet the parents? Please. Okay. So uh, this is a very famous comedy of our youth. Uh, it came out in 2000. Ben Stiller plays Greg. He's the suitor. Robert De Niro. They're on the poster together. I think you want to talk about the poster together. Robert De Niro. We must talk the, about the poster. Is the uh, the monstrous father-in-law. Um, Blythe Danner is the mom. And what's the name of the of Pam? Greg. Terry Polo. Yeah. Uh, what to explain about this movie? Do you want to synopsize real fast? Greg Fokker is a male nurse who's trying to marry Pam Burns, a third Woman. grade, second grade teacher. <laughs> right. Um, and he's about to surprise her with this sort of cutesy, her class is going to facilitate the asking of, will you marry me? But then she gets a sudden phone call from her sister announcing that she's getting married. And the best part was that the guy to be the fiance, Dr. Bob had asked Robert De Niro, Jack Burns for his permission. Cause he's sort of an old school guy before the asking of the uh, question. Right. So, Greg cancels his his cute child asking thing and decides that they are going to what well, they're given with this incredible two week opportunity because this wedding is happening in two weeks or something uh, for her sister. Uh, so then they go out to Long Island to meet the parents, the titular parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and his plan, Greg Ben Stiller, is to ask at some point Jack if he can marry Terry Polo, Pam. Right. Um, and it goes horribly wrong because Robert De Niro doesn't like him and keeps like weirdly kind of bullying Greg into lies. But although Greg doesn't have to tell some of the lies, we have, we have more character questions, I think. Yes. Um, but yeah, he gets sort of caught up in this conspiracy and some bad luck to make him look like this huge asshole right. when really he's just kind of a schmuck pam is the one greg wants to marry just relax honey he's gonna love you but before he can pop the question he'll have to meet hi daddy the parents what are you driving there ford oh yeah it's an interesting color you pick it oh no no the hearse guy picked it why well they say geniuses pick green but you didn't pick it nice to this one, okay? Okay, I'll try. Now, he will enter their home. You know, Greg's in medicine, too, Larry. Oh, really? What field? Uh, nursing. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a lot of men in your profession, are there, Greg? And earn his way... Do you want to hear a story? I milked a cat once. A cat? Into the family. You know, just... I had no idea you could milk a cat. Oh, yeah, you can milk anything with nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Dad. At least that was the plan. Hey, it's Greg <laughs> Why don't we start here? Is that your favorite Ben Stiller look? Schmuck? Schmuck definitely fits Ben Stiller. Okay. Um, from his like schmucky hair and then like how schmucky he looks in Robert De Niro's clothes. Uh, 
Yeah, I think Ben Stiller is a good, like, on that spectrum of schmuckiness. Like, I think that's where he thrives. Okay. You know, I think we remembered how good of a schmuck he was when we saw uh, the Meyerowitz stories recently. That's true. We'd spent too much time, I think, like, having him not be a schmuck. And then Noah Baumbach's like, you're a schmuck. Just come on back. Right. You don't like... Okay, it's interesting. I really like his over-the-top villain roles. I like dodgeball. I like heavyweights. Um, sure. I like, uh, you know, even like Zoolander, like there is, even in his obliviousness, he sometimes can like take on that, the vanity. Vanity. Right. He plays a lot of vain characters. And I want to talk about like his physique in the famous Speedo scene, which is kind of like, he's pretty jacked for that not being like a character for being a thing. For being a yeah. schmuck. <laughs> Um, yeah, but then there are weirdly moments where he like slips into the, to the white Goodman thing. Where he's like, if you want to come over here and take my bag away from me, just take it. And then he like calls the, <laughs> calls the stewardess a bad name and then like does karate in the, you know, the teddy bear Right, camp. the movie famously ends with the, him doing karate into the nanny cam. The, can you deal with that? Right. Um, which is a little odd. Again, it makes me think that this is not a, uh particularly well thought out character well that's what so i want to talk about this as we break down this movie let's do it the fact that like this movie comes from all over the place like there was so many influences on this script and also like they made up a lot of it while they were shooting the movie and a lot of the famous stuff too okay so this movie begins as a piece of intellectual property um as this like fifteen thousand dollar indie movie with of the same name that the rights are bought by National Lampoon through Universal to put it out on a VHS original. Like how long before 2000, do you know? So that's 1992. That's eight years earlier. Uh-huh. So Jay Roach gets attacked, attached. They also have Jim Hertzfeld and John Hamburg. Hamburg is a friend of uh, Stiller. And he did Why Him recently and I Love You Man and Along Came Polly and stuff like that. Okay. And then Jim Shepard and Alexander Payne do an uncredited rewrite on this. And famously, what they leave in it is Alexander Payne's poem that Jack reads about his mother dying of cancer, which is like Ravaging her one organs. of them. Yeah. Like, I selfishly tried to keep you here while the cancer ate away at your organs. And Stiller has that great line, uh, there's a lot of love in there, a lot of information, too. <laughs> A lot of it's great how you balance all that love with all that information. Um, and I think one of the important one of the important physical scenes too is the scene where they're racing back to the ha- the house so Ben Stiller can like dispose of the cat or whatever before yeah. he's they figure out it's not the right cat and they kept getting stopped at stoplights. Well, apparently they just like had set up on that street and the stoplights were so fast that they like couldn't do the drag race scene that they were looking for. Oh. So that became just like a goof of shooting the movie. That's funny. That's That makes me like it more. It does make me like it more. Um, and it just, it's, it really feels like, you know, maybe you don't love Ben Stiller's performance in this, but this movie gives every actor in it enough rope to hang themselves with. And in some cases, like to really shine. Like, I think this is frankly one of Owen Wilson's best performances to date. Yes. You put it up there with, uh, I'm going to the doc here. You put it up there with Eli Cash in terms of bit parts. Absolutely. But not as good as Eli Cash. There's something about, 
you know, when Ben Stiller's like, oh, what what made you decide to become a carpenter? And he like, without missing a beat, with total sincerity, <laughs> he's like, oh, well, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, um, let's talk about Bobby D real quick, okay? Yeah, let's go to Robert De Niro. This returns us to a theory I believe we agreed on when we did analyze this, mm-hmm. which is, and the IMDb bears this out beautifully, which is that as soon as Robert De Niro realized that he could basically do the Robert De Niro thing, that he could be, you know, what's his name in Goodfellas? Jimmy Conway, is that right? Um, in a comedic sense and just intimidate more, less masculine men, his thing became shtick and he never really tried again. Like, I dare you to find me. Like, he basically stops acting very hard after 1999. Sure. Um, and the funny parts of this movie, when it comes to Robert De Niro, are not the like, I'm tougher than you, Greg, I'm tougher than you. The funny parts are when he's being like, trying to be very, very polite. But I think the best part about this performance, though, and I think you're maybe underselling it a little, is because not only is he like intimidating and super polite, he's also a vacuum for humor. Which mm. makes like Ben Stiller's thing like not work, but like not work in such an entertaining way. Because like through the first three quarters of this movie, uh, until he lands that like I'm gonna go take a shower, fairy or something, you uh-huh. know, towards the climax of the film, no joke that Ben Stiller makes in a group setting lands. And Robert right. De Niro is like really sort of like that absorbent force, being like, nope, we're gonna take this in and give you nothing back. And I think it's such a good sort of like if acting is reacting, I think it's so good how he like doesn't give Ben Stiller like an inch. I think that's fine. I know, of course, what you're talking about, but I also just think that's his thing. Like when he's hosted SNL any time in, you know, in a pretty mediocre way from like 2000 to now, it's just like what I don't do is react to like you sissy boys and all your jokes. Right. Like, I'm a little too cool for that. Um, but I lose my shit when he's just, like, being a dad. When they're in the car and he's mumbling and they're taking that ride to the grocery store. And he's like, Saturday. Good day, Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> like, talking about Puff the Magic Dragon, of course. And Greg's like, well, it's, you know, it's a song about, like, about weed. And he's just like, no, Puff is the name of the boy's magical dragon. <laughs> In the way that Ready or Not is an indictment, I think, of a kind of thinking, this one is also sort of like that baby boomer generation of just like men who understood what was going on immediately with only like the basic facts. Right. You know, and if you challenge them, well, you're a pothead. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah, I think the script, I think the script is perhaps even a little better than the performance. And I think that Jay Roach, who has made plenty of, of bad movies and has this weird thing where he's interested in both like the stupidest kinds of comedy, but he's also really interested in American politics. Like he's got the Fox News movie Bombshell coming out. Um, and he did the LBJ movie all the way. Uh, but he also did the campaign, a movie we both hate. Um, and that is Austin a terrible Power. movie. And the Austin Powers movies, which also we do not like on this program. Do they make you Randy, baby? Mm. Um, it was not surprising to me when you talked about National Lampoon, thinking about buying this movie, because it reminded me of things I do not like about the vacation movies. And I know we disagree on those movies, but I think this movie's first half is a lot better than the second because there's a thing that happens in the movie where Occam's razor keeps falling the wrong way just to humiliate Greg. And by the time we get to 
spray painting the cat and the septic tank and the fire in the backyard. It's kind of like he becomes a man who's just driven mad basically by a series of unfortunate events, which is very Griswoldian. Um, and it's just something I don't like because it doesn't speak to doesn't speak to character very well. It just speaks to a snowballing of com- of like of set pieces. I disagree with you there. I think this of movie course you do. <laughs> builds in a way that like arcs in such an interesting fashion where things get worse and worse. And instead of like making a good impression, whereas the first half is about making a good impression, the second half is about sheer survival and like whether or not this relationship is going to exist by Sunday evening, you know? And I think that showing how far this character is willing to go is never against character. I mean, I think you know from the first scene in the movie that, like, this guy's willing to go above and beyond however he organized those, like, seven-year-olds to hold up all those signs, you know, is the same sort of perverse logic that led him to be like, you know, that cat looks similar. I'm sure the cat will turn up. If I just get a little spray paint and spray paint the tail of this cat, he'll come back. And then he's doing that hard work of like pretending to go to the bathroom and calling all these places while they're at the goddamn rehearsal dinner. And Mm -hmm. I think like having him have all those like plates on sticks in the air, like that is still the character. It's like, that's what the guy does. That's what he likes about nursing. It's all this like hands-on sort of long-term managing expectations and stuff like that. You know, whereas you have then Robert De Niro on the other side, ex CIA, who's looking to build a case And he's looking for facts and he's looking for specific instances to say, like, this is something that needs to be considered more thoroughly. This is this guy is a threat and I have five reasons why. And I think it it plays into that. And I think in a surprising way that you're maybe not giving it credit for. Yeah, but I mean, come on, like his capabilities, like as a professional nurse are like just a laugh line in the movie. Like the fact that he's good at juggling things, I suppose, lines up with like what nurses do. But like that doesn't he's first of all, he's not good at juggling things. And the things that happen to him don't come out of his character. It's just like escalation of like comedy day of sex machina, the septic tank the everything burning down um when i when i knew i was really kind of like ugh, was when the fake cat like shit on the wedding dress whenever these movies hit their like animals do stuff to clothes which also happens in monster in law i think we're in a pretty cheap area random it's all based on decisions that he has made in there and i think they're funny like they're laugh out loud funny when like these things happen like when he loses the race back to the house and he's just sitting there in the car because he knows that something horrible is going to happen when they get inside. And 10 seconds later, there is that chilling scream. You mm-hmm. know? And I think you also have two actors like at the some point in the game. I'm not going to say the top of their game, but like not remotely at some, but at some seminal moment though, of like movements in their careers for Ben Stiller, like this is a seminal moment. And for Robert De Niro, like this is a seminal moment. He's retiring. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's going, he's becoming actor emeritus or something. Exactly. There you go. But seeing him go up against Stiller in the scene with like the polygraph and these other moments too, I mean, that's as good as seeing, you know, a more serious De Niro going against like a Pacino in Heat or something. I could, that's nonsense. I completely disagree with that. Ben Stiller, he's just, he's just doe-eyed 
and he's just like nervous about like there why why is he not able to tell the truth why is he not able to just be like direct i mean this goes back to the relationship he has because he's not a one he's not a two-dimensional character he's a three-dimensional character so how can you i don't understand i'm asking for three dimensions there are two the script for having these like flimsy characters that aren't well developed but then when you find a place of like nuance or subtext you're like and that just doesn't make any sense what are you talking about i'm talking about your evaluation these are not three-dimensional characters i think the actors are allowed to bring a little something that allows them to be pretty interesting in in a way that i don't think a lot of similar movies at least in that domestic comedy space are able to do i mean this is also a huge box office hit and frankly a movie that's like everyone has seen and i think universally likes what is your what's your why why are you so frustrated with it i'm reappraising it i've i've i said lots of stuff that i like about it i just don't think it's like great i think there's a reason that i think there's a reason there are two shitty sequels and that people just remember the polygraph and i have nipples greg could you milk me um but there are so many I, better moments in the movie too. I but I think it represents a big fall off for De Niro. I think it's like a kind of rickety director in Jay Roach. I I like the first half of it a lot. I think you're reading a lot of the latter day since, you know, much like Robert De Niro finding that little card box of his own from Mr. LaBelle, you know, you're thinking of Dirty Grandpa when you're watching this movie knowing that that is the inevitable you know, dropping of, of the I second shoe of this Faustian bargain. Is that, that he, an inappropriate way to watch the movie? I think if you look at it, though, as a time capsule and not the predictor of shittier things to come, I mean, you mm-hmm. say, would say that about all... I think this represents a, a moment in comedy that was really, really good and really interesting that 20 years later, it's not as funny. Doesn't so mean that it saying, wasn't funny at the time. That I don't like not, Citizen well, Kane because it's in black and white. Couldn't they have used modern cameras? Show. That is not what we do on this show. I'm supposed to put myself in a 2000s person audience? No, I'm just like, saying that you've been jaded by shittier movies. And now looking back, you can't appreciate this one for how good it actually is. What you're saying is you loved the part where it's revealed his name is Gaylord. You're saying you think that is the pinnacle of comedy even now. That's just not a normal name, as Denny <laughs> says. I'm sorry to be laughing, but Gaylord Fokker is just not a normal name. That's what, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I didn't want to come to fisticuffs over this. I think it's a bad good. I don't hate it. I think that's foolish. I think that's naive. Um, but, you know, you're entitled to your inadequate opinions. This is most assuredly a good good. And I think a classic. You think it's just a classic? I think it's a classic 2000s comedy. Okay, right up there with Citizen Kane, you said? (laughs) No, I was just busting your balls on that one. Okay, Monster-in-Law. I think this is frankly one of the best films we've ever watched on this podcast. (laughs) I'm coming in hot. (laughs) But you're coming in facetious. Please tell me you're coming in facetious. I am. Okay, this, this is a rough one. Um, this is this was a rough one and it i mean both because of its politics and because it's not a good movie oh it's in fact it's real real bad i think it's real Um, real bad and like you know pretty quickly that it's real real bad 
Yeah, I do think it gets worse when Jane Fonda shows up, though. If I had to watch J-Lo walk dogs and Michael Vartan be not famous, um, I would do it for a while. I am a famous Michael Vartan apologist. You said, and I keep using this, <laughs> at least like the skeleton of this joke a lot. You said it was good that he cheated on his wife in one hour photo. <laughs> Why did I say it was good? No, I'm just fucking with you. You just rubber stamp everything Michael Vartan does with approval. I thought he played a compelling husband who cheated on his wife. He has a he kind of has like a Chris Martin thing going on um, at this time in terms of like Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay. Yeah. Um, you, you think like he's that, got a sky full of stars? You think he's feeling wh- drunk and high? Yeah. Why do you why do you reference? the worst Coldplay. Why do you reference new Because Coldplay? like you looking back at Meet the Parents in 2000, I cannot look back at early Coldplay oh, without knowing the inevitable decline <laughs> that is coming and has thus sh- like totally ruined that band uh, for everyone. You're the what? only one still holding on. I'm not holding on for anything, but like you did use my argument pretty well there, so I'll let it pass. Um... Yeah, so this is a movie directed by Robert Luketic. Um, Luketic? Who, Luketic. Oh, there's there's some of my fun pronunciation. Um, he directed Legally Blonde, so that's good. And he directed The Ugly Truth, so that's real Which bad. is the most misogynist. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. You directed a movie somehow more misogynist than Monster-in-Law. Absolutely. Um And I mean, this movie, like its big marketing thing and a big publicity thing was the fact that it was Jane Fonda coming out after 15 years of not making a movie. I'm not looking for perfect. I just want a sweet guy. Maybe he'll complete you. (laughs) Charlie had given up on trying to find the perfect man until she met. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Kevin. Hi. Hi. Today, she's going to meet his mother. I'm nervous. Don't be nervous. She's going to love you. You're bringing a girl home to meet your mother. Now, Kevin. I'll introduce you to someone. Well, I'm Charlie. Very nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Please sit down. And get the surprise. Oh, my God. Of a lifetime. Charlie, will you marry me? No, no. It's too sudden. She's in shock. Yes. You're going to need a moment alone. I'll be right back. J-Lo, um, which boy, this movie made me like second act a lot, um, is a is a temp who does like 10 things. She's a dog walker. She's a doctor's office receptionist. She's, uh, what else does she do? She's also an artist, but does she have another like gig? Yeah, she like paints mediocre flowers on walls. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. She doesn't seem to have like a big passion though. And I think that's all right. Well, I mean, who needs to have a passion? She's just, you know, she's just paying the rent. She's getting by. Yeah, and she meets rich Dr. Michael Vartan, and they fall in love. Let me ask you this right up. How old are these people? This is one of of our classic questions. And when you don't know, it spells trouble. Because, like, Jennifer Lopez's character is in her mid-20s, right? No older than, like, 28. But, like, Jennifer Lopez has to be in her early 30s in this. 33. And Vartan's, like, 36 Right. And so then by the end, you think like, oh, this is a woman in her her 30s. Like, why is she letting Jane Fonda like walk all over her? 
Well, this is what bothers. I mean, it bothers me a little bit with Meet the Parents too, especially in the in the Greg Pam relationship. Is like you just all I want so bad is for you guys like just to talk to each other. And right. the complications come out of what feel like at least like cinematically honest conversations. Like, fine, let's go deep and let's get weird with this. But it's just so much of like, could you just like uh, be direct or right. just left the house? Yeah, well, you can't leave the house in. Uh Ready or not. Ready or not. The, the no. windows are locked. Locked down. So let's talk about the plot of this movie. So, yes, you have this this sort of wayward Jennifer Lopez trying to figure it out. She's like really never had that serious of a relationship we know from her conversations um, with her gay best friend, Adam Scott. Who is truly the gay best friend stereotype from rom-coms and just like... The worst way. I mean, it's Adam Scott, so he's like kind of winning, but at this, but the part is not winning at all. You know how you know he's gay because he keeps putting on women's clothes. Bad. Bad. Um, and so yeah, she like runs into him a couple of times, most notably uh, in a scene where she's at a coffee shop with Duck Phillips from Mad Men, who <laughs> can't seem to get his latte right. So he loses $20 that Jennifer Lopez gives to the tip jar, which has nothing to do with Michael Vartan then seeing her and falling in love with her. So there's this story of them getting together, which is like not that interesting. And then the B plot, of course, is Jane Fonda, who she hosts this day show. What was it called, Chance? Public Intimacy. But she's also like, kind of of the like fox news talking heads ilk right like she's one of the women on the escal or on the elevator from bombshell yeah she's like diane sawyer but like with no people skills which is weird because like you need a lot of people skills to be right diane and she also like if held over the coals a little would definitely admit to fearing the brown invasion coming absolutely a hundred percent um, which is part of what makes this movie feel gross. Oh, yeah. It's 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 written from a gross place. And so then she has like a problem. So she gets let go from her job and replaced by... It's sort of a late night send up here where it's like she's replaced by some 22-year-old blonde. Uh, which the movie like doesn't play for like the feminism joke. Just plays for like the, oh, look at this babe. Right. Which yeah. is sort of icky. Uh, so then her and her assistant, assistant slash companion, Wanda Sykes, go off and like she's in rehab for some time because she like chokes out some Britney Spears acolyte on the air after she finds out she's getting replaced. Yeah. And then like the thing she hears first when she returns to her mansion after rehab or whatever is that her son is coming to visit and he's bringing his new girlfriend jennifer lopez charlie i mean i only have like four things to say about this movie it's kind of like despicable and even though it was like a big hit it's also like i don't know even though it was a class it was an omnipresent blockbuster cover in 2005 2006 um it's just one of the really weird things about it is that uh, a lot of the movie is from Jane Fonda's perspective while she's plotting for no reason. But the movie is also like a little bit afraid to make her super 
like articulately evil in you know, like a race class thing. Right. Even though, like, why else would she do it? She doesn't have any reason to do what she's doing, which, you know, her misdeeds range from literally poisoning J-Lo with nuts, which, like, you shouldn't poison people who have nut allergies. They could die. Right. Um, to just, like, moving in and, you know, being... And suffocating her on the couch and being a bad movie-watching companion. Um, but we're just seeing her POV a lot, which makes it seem like she is somehow, like, valid... In doing this, which well, the difference, not. the difference between her and like the Andy McDowell character from Ready or Not is she like mistrusts or distrusts this foreign usurper because of wanting her lineage to continue and wanting to understand continuity of her bloodline or something, which is like right. evil and dark and like kind of twisted. Whereas like this one. She seems to not Jane Fonda doesn't seem to have much of a relationship with Michael Vartan before the events of this movie. I mean, other than him saying she calls like four times a day. But right. like what does that mean? And like there's no real clue in to how Jennifer Lopez is gonna fundamentally change anything about her life, which then raises the dire question of why is Jane Fonda trying to break up their wedding. It's not a clear reason. And so we're left to assume bad reasons. Or no reasons, which is even maybe more frustrating. Mm, Are you saying this is like a nihilist masterpiece, perhaps? I don't think that is what I'm saying. (laughs) It is an interesting, you know, I, I mean, that was a fucking left field joke. But it is an interesting moment in the, even though this was a big hit. In the slow, like, death of the, you know, theatrical rom-com, where we did sort of maybe hit this moment of, like, nihilism in terms of just, like, why do they do what they do? I don't know. We make these fucking movies. Like, we throw the people in there, and you know what's really fun is, like, when the women get mad at each other, try to drive each other nuts. Because that's what this movie feels like. The characters don't evolve in meaningful ways i think you were saying that j-lo doesn't the j-lo character does not change or improve or like find her own way in any meaningful way because of what jane fonda puts her through no if anything it's kind of like her raison d'etre is like thank god i found a man to give my life some meaning because i otherwise have nothing going for me totally yeah which is also gross (laughs) Which is also gross. And then Jane Fonda sort of invalidating her need for that uh, is not played for like laughs or feminism. It's just played for like, I mean, when her when her mother ends up coming to the wedding, uh, it's played for the racial truth that it is that she doesn't want her like doctor son to marry uh, a Latinx uh, Jane of all trades. Right. Is there... I mean, I don't know. I'm I we're running out of opportunities to say anything nice about the movie. Do you buy at all the the idea that we see the cruelty of the Fonda character's mom and there's like this cycle of like, oh, at least I understand how this how this happens. Does that make it any better for you at all? No. I right. think if it's not played for that like ready or not like look at how fucking toxic this is, like how do we end this by fire? Right. Um if it's not there, it's just sort of sad and predictable. Um, 
this movie also has like a couple of those like annoying movie things that bother me you know like they have the wedding spoiler uh and they get married spoiler and then instead of like going to their reception they get in this car and like drive to the airport to go to their honeymoon it's like what have you ever been to a (laughs) wedding where there wasn't like when does the car even come in i've never seen this fucking car right like when does that all the weddings i've ever been a part of we like went from the outside area to the inside area for the cocktail hour preceded by the reception proper like when is there the car with the cans and the sign and everything that's like oh they just got when is that supposed to happen is that from the church to the reception hall and drives them straight to cozumel (laughs) I guess. Um, yeah, if we're if we're nitpicking on that level, this has one of my uh, one of my ho- least favorite like Hollywood things. It has the uh, the mischief music, dun 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 dun, as like Jane Fonda's <laughs> like, oh, I'm gonna make kidney pie. That's always a bad side. Yeah, there's a lot of like weird food in this one too. Whether it's like the somewhat triggering nut allergy thing, or you know, you like her making. What does she make that's like gross, but like not that weird? Is it squid? I, yeah, or something like that. It doesn't matter. Can we talk about, do you feel like this movie, part of the problem with it is that like it's edited funny? Like edited in a way where you're like, it's the, edited in a way where like all the performances are just cameos except for Jennifer Lopez and Jane Fonda. It's so weird to me, for example, that Will Arnett is in this movie, like, as a prominent pedophile character, but, like, only in the last 20 minutes. Like, in the last 20 minutes, there's not one but two episodes of him, like, hitting on a young girl and then, like, either getting caught or someone, like, rolling their eyes at the fact that, like, the girl's only 16. Right. And then is otherwise unmentioned and unimportant to the A plot of this movie. Yeah. No me chance. I'm willing to abide a pretty crappy romantic comedy, especially a bad one from 2005. <laughs> like I there's nothing better than than rom-coms from 2005. I how about rom-coms from 1993? I think are as a rule better. Well, those are like better movies, but when it comes to just like bad good romantic comedies like they don't make bad romantic comedies like they used to listen back to our second act episode like we mined the hell out of that thing for like whatever was in there even it was just a bunch of cream sequences um but monster in laws monster in law had no cream sequences it had nobody and that's the thing too like a smarter movie wouldn't have had her lose the most interesting thing about her aka that like job where she interviews famous people in the first scene it would have her like doing both and like using her tv influence to like fuck over jennifer lopez who then uses her jane of all trades skills to like undo her what's interesting about these characters never comes into play i feel the opposite about what happens to ben stiller's greg Uh in meet the parents like him getting to like use the things he's like sort of incidentally picked up his his slumdog millionaire if you will there are no slumdog millionaire moments in monster-in-law no it's it's just a random meandering problematic on so many different levels we didn't even get into like the how 
this Jane Fonda and like her black assistant thing is like kind of weird. I mean, very of, of its time, you know, 15, 14 years ago, uh, but still like not quite. It's so old Hollywood in the, in like not in, in like the worst ways. I think we have to throw back to our fan fiction episode to find movies this bad. Um, so it's a, it's an easy bad bad for me. I wish so many times in this movie I was just like, get the crossbows out, just kill each other already. Right, In, inflict some real pain here, and not just like the stabbing in the back of the nut allergy thing. Yeah, I think you. This movie's like both too severe and like totally without teeth. Yeah, it doesn't also doesn't I mean doesn't have any charm, doesn't have any passion, um, definitely doesn't have any compassion. That being said, this is an unquestionable bad bad. This is the kind of bad bad that when in the future people are like, "What's a bad bad?" I'm gonna be like, "Monster in law." Yep, it's true. It's true. All right, we out of here. Do we have any final thoughts about weddings? Now's the time in the show where you're just like, "Chance, you getting married?" <laughs> <laughs> that's usually how we wrap up uh, it took the words right out of my mouth buddy we already um, talked about the judge um so i don't know what else we have to say from our own from our own lives thank you as always for listening to be real here on the playlist podcast network find us on twitter find us on instagram uh Go to berealpodcast.com if you want to, if you want some some writing and some some back catalog. Uh, but as always, we're happy to talk to you. We're working out some September categories uh, probably right after we hang up here. Um, no pressure. Uh, but buddy, pleasure to talk to you. Sick and tired of your mo-